Amen. Ryan was close. Turn to Judges 10. Um, I'm just going to read a bit. We're actually going to take three, two and a half chapters today, but uh, I won't read it all at once. But we'll begin in chapter 10, beginning in verse 6. I'll read to the end of chapter 10 this time. Judges chapter 10, please. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We've sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites uh, oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you've forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. The people of Israel said to the Lord, we've sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord and became impatient over the misery of Israel. And the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead and the people of Israel came together and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead said one to another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It's a dark time in the history of Israel. In fact, I've been thinking over these last couple of months, why in the world did I choose judges? Um, Many of you have been told me that it's blessed you in various ways, and certainly for me as well, but but it's a really dark time in, 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 in the lives of of this nation, the lives of these people. If nothing else, I've been anticipating Advent like I never have before, I think. I want to see the light of the Incarnation coming soon. So it's a good preparation uh, for that. But notice here, just in the passage that I read, the cycle that we've been experiencing, that we've seen uh, with ancient Israel in, in these days. They, they forget about the Lord and they do what is evil in this sight and they worship the gods of the nations that inhabit this place with them and around them. And, and here, uh, the list seems endless. Every nation that could possibly be around them, they've taken up their gods in some way and abandoned their own, which, which means they've, they've taken these other gods and they've said to these gods, define who we are, direct our lives, and we'll give you praise. They've depended upon these other gods for their security, for their peace, for their provision, uh, for the direction of their lives and, and abandoned what is true about the true and living God. 
And, and God being in covenant with these people, you can't imagine that he was faithful to them. They are to be faithful to him. That's what this covenant relationship is. And they broke faithfulness. God was angry, disciplined them. And the way he disciplined them is in a sense, he, he gave them over to those gods. So these nations oppressed them. But what we see here is a bit of a twist. What we've been seeing is when they cry out to the Lord, he says, fine, I'll send you a deliverer. But there's a, there's a little wrinkle in this one. And it's a, to me, it's a shocking wrinkle in verse 13. He said, you've forsaken me, God says, and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. And that just seems out of sync with how I've been reading all of this. You get the sense that God knows their hearts. God knows that they're not being terribly sincere here, that they're rather bargaining with him. They're saying, you know, uh, things are going badly for us. Okay, so could you now come and help us? We want the peace and security and all of that. We don't want you necessarily. But okay, we'll admit you're the only one that can bring it, so bring it. Uh, we're over a barrel here, so help us in this way. And God says, no, 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 no. Can't let you do that. So I want you to depend upon these gods. I want you to see how that works for you. Have you ever wondered about that? I mean, we all have our little idols, don't we? Certain ways, things we know that we depend upon other than God. Oh, we depend upon him, but but these other things sort of fill in the gaps for us, whether it's our wealth or whether it's our stuff that we have or whether it's the fantasy life that we have in our minds that we go to when times are tough and it seems to relieve the pressure at the moment rather than going to God and depending upon him. We know all those little things. Have you ever wondered what it would be like if that's all you had? Because we know, I mean, we know as believers in Jesus, we know that that's sin and we know that that won't do it. We, won't, we, we know that that won't satisfy really that, that there will come a moment in our lives when whatever money we have won't solve the problem that we have. Sometimes it's a relational problem with someone and we just can't spend enough to make it work. When we're lying on our deathbed, we might have all the money in the world, but it won't bring us health. See, um, the fantasy life that we go to won't help us when the reality of life presses in upon us. And we say, I, I can no longer ignore this reality with this fantasy. And it just doesn't cut it. It doesn't. And, and, and the danger for us is that we go to God then like they did and bargain in a sense. We go to God like they did and, and, and say, okay, I don't really want you. I just want what you can give me. <laughs> and God says, no, 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 no. You want me or not me. When I come, I bring peace and security, but, but it comes with me. You've got to trust me. You've got to want me. Now, it seems like it worked for the people at least. Um, sorry to evaluate their hearts, but in verse 15, and the people of Israel said to the Lord, we've sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. <laughs> in other words, okay, we're, we, we get it now. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And, and so there, you get a real sense of repentance. That's the sense of repentance. I'm going to turn away from trusting all of this and I'm going to turn now to trust 
you. We can't evaluate the sincerity of their hearts or anything like that. But but that's this the sense here. And then this interesting expression. And so the Lord became impatient over the misery of Israel. Uh, it's when translators should translate perhaps less literally. Uh, what he means is he's going to come and help them finally because he's he can't. He's, he's moved by their misery and will and will help them. Now, at that point, we're expecting a deliverer to be named, but he's not quite named at that point. We just see the battle lines being drawn. Uh, the Ammonites come uh, to, uh, at, 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 in Gilead and the, the Israelites are in Mitzvah. And so you get this, this sense that, okay, a battle is brewing. And then we're introduced to the deliverer. Take a look at chapter 11 and verse 1. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadites, was a mighty warrior. So it's going to choose now a mighty warrior. Interesting. But notice about his life. But he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So you get a picture of his, of his life. His mom was a prostitute. So you can only imagine he didn't have a great relationship with her. You can also imagine he didn't have a great relationship with his father's wife, who was also the mother of his other sons, father's other sons. And then you realize... Throughout the course of his life, he didn't get along well with his brothers because they knew who his mother was. And so when he became of age, they kicked him out of the family. His father didn't protect him. His mother didn't protect him. They kicked him out of the family and he lost his inheritance. You get a sense that he had a sense of worthlessness about his own life because those are the people that he gathered around him, other worthless fellows. And he became essentially a bandit. Right. Verse four. After a time, the Ammonites went, uh, made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. That's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? Uh, they'd kicked him out. And he's surprised. Verse 7. But Jephthah said to the uh, elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? In other words, you didn't stick up for me. When, when they kicked me out, you just sort of applauded. And, and now you're coming to me for help because I've shown that I'm a mighty warrior because I'm a great bandit with all these other worthless fellows. Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the, the Ammonites and uh, be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, he sells a sense of the Lord here. He knows what's going on. Uh, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah uh, spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizphah. So you got the picture here that they're getting him to be in a very real way their uh, deliverer. It strikes me, though, as I read this, and I don't think this is necessarily the primary point 
of this passage, but I can't help my mind from thinking about Jephthah's life, um, that here he grew, the way he grew up, must have been, must have grown up in a very difficult circumstance given his mom and the fact that he was the son of his father's unfaithfulness. And everybody seemed to know that. That wouldn't have gone well for him. It didn't go well in his family, probably didn't go well for him in his relationships with the other kids and all of that. Finally, Rejected, you just got a sense of how he's growing up in that, in that situation. But somehow, it didn't keep him from answering this call. Somehow, it didn't keep him from, from, from defending these people and being their deliverer. You know, you wonder, don't we? We believe deeply and utterly, radically in the sovereignty of God. You've got to get a sense that Jephthah's growing up going, I didn't choose this. Yeah, I didn't choose my mom. I didn't choose my family. I didn't choose my dad who was unfaithful and here I am. I didn't choose these brothers who would reject me. But I'm in this situation. And, and, and I think about these things and I, I realize that God seems to let me think this seems too out. God has ordained for some more difficulty than for others. I didn't grow up like this. And yet we wonder then. <laughs> what about it, God? I mean, if I'm Jephthah, I'm perhaps growing up thinking about that. Even in the dark times in Israel, something was known about the Lord. And, and you think about why, God, I didn't choose this. Here I find myself. Now I'm being rejected by my family and all of that. Some of us born into situations, some of us have situations. Where you go, I didn't choose that. That happened to me. And, and so, God, you're the sovereign one. Why did you ordain that in, in my life? Whatever we can say, it didn't keep him from calling, from, from answering the call of God. And so uh, I would suggest to us, to me, that we need... To take comfort in the sovereignty of God. Even in the difficult sovereignty of God. Or the difficulty that he brings to us. And trust him. That he's good. And that he's wise. And that he's powerful. The alternative is, seems to me even worse to think there's just fate, that just things just happen and there's really no reason or rhyme to them. We're just kind of the, 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 the victims here. Uh, and, uh, but it's better, it seems to me, and more biblical, obviously, to, to trust that, that God is actively involved. God has ordained the circumstances of our lives. And then we trust him. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, some of you have read this, if you haven't, I urge you to. But he, he talks about, uh, sometimes we want to be in, in the main control room. He uses a situation of trains going about their business. He says, you can be in the signal box and see where they're all going. That's not where we live. God lives there. He knows where it's all going. He plans all of that out. We sit on the, on the deck, if you will, and we see trains coming and going. And ours is simply to trust and obey. And, and, and I don't know. About Jephthah, but, but it seems like perhaps he did. Uh, oh, it wasn't the perfect response, I'm sure. 
But still yet, he didn't let that difficulty in his life. It must have been hard. I just can't imagine. But he, in some sense, by faith, took this up. So then the uh, Ammonites uh, are before him to make war. And so he begins by negotiating. He doesn't go to war against them. Uh, He begins by talking to them about the land that they're going to fight about and that they're fighting about. And and so rather than going to war against them initially, he uses uses history and logic and even theology in order to say, no, this land really belongs to us and not to you. I won't read all of it. You can do it. It's an interesting discourse. His bottom line is, um, your God decided not to give it to you. Our God decided to, so it's really ours. And so we're, we're going to have it. And the Ammonites weren't too uh, agreeable. And so verse 27 of chapter 11 goes like this. As I therefore have not sinned against you, that is Jephthah speaking, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, and here you can see if you're looking at a text the Lord is all, each letter capitalized, which means it's Yahweh, which means this is God's family name, God's covenant name, the name for his people, the name that he gives to his people to call him. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent uh, to him. And the Lord did judge. And notice verse 29. The spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on the, onto Mitzvah of Gilead and from Mitzvah uh, um, of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And then you'll notice, I'll get back to those other verses, verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them and the Lord gave them into his hand and he struck them from uh, Aor to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities and as far as Abel Kiramim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And so they won the battle. They defeated the Ammonites. But at a great cost. Verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give me the Ammonite, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites uh, shall be uh, the Lord's and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzvah and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you brought me very low and you've become the cause of great trouble to me. For I've opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go then. He sent her away for two months. 
And she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileonites, four days in the year. You know, if you know anything about the book of Judges, you probably know Gideon, Samson, and this. It's hard to forget it once you hear of it, once you read of it. And, and, and we can't help but think, what, Jephthah, what were you thinking? What were you thinking when you made that vow? Some would say, well, maybe he thought there was an animal was going to come out of his house and he would offer it as a burnt offering. We get the whatever and the it there. It, it gives some sense of that. But people who knew the culture said that was pr- pretty unlikely to happen, that an animal would come out of his house even then. He didn't really need it. It was unnecessary to make this kind of vow because the Spirit of the Lord was on him. God had promised this land to Abraham, Moses, Joshua, everybody before him. So it wasn't a stretch to think we're going to have this land, especially with the Spirit of the Lord uh, upon him. A human sacrifice? He shouldn't have even thought of that. Human sacrifice was outlawed in Israel. If you read through the Old Testament time after time, the Lord says, don't be like those uh, pagans. Don't be like those who worship these other gods and offer their children in the fire. No, 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 no. I'm not after that. You get a sense, was he, was he so enculturated by the people around him that, that he thought he could appease God in some way by offering some kind of of sacrifice? Was he negotiating with God, which we all know is a foolish thing? Saying, if you do this, I'll do that. What was he, what was he really thinking? Some have suggested it and not unfaithfully, at least they're not trying to be unfaithful to the text, but Some have said, well, he didn't really kill her. Uh, Really, what he did was dedicate her to the work of the Lord. She would never marry, that she would always be a virgin, and the sacrifice would be his family name. He would never have a child. He would never have a a male that would carry on the family name or anyone that would carry on the family name for him, and that was the sacrifice. There's various reasons why some hold that view. Some really good people hold that view. It just doesn't seem to cut mustard with the text itself. For he did with her according to according to his vow. He, he seemed shocked, though, when she came out of the out of the door, and he almost seemed to blame her. Like, what are you doing? Uh, don't you know what this is going to do to me? I made this vow. She didn't know any of that. She was just a delightful daughter. You can only imagine her dad's coming back from war. He was victorious and she has tambourines and she's going to sing and she's going to honor her father as he comes. And, and you can even see now there's something about her. That you see, How can you even say that when, he, when she learns of the vow? And he said, she says, that's okay, dad. If you made this vow to the Lord, the Lord has given you victory. That's okay. You can fulfill it. Just give me a couple of months. I'll deal with this. We'll be good. And... Uh, And we, we wonder about that. 
Uh, it's easy for us to be really highly critical of Jephthah at this point, uh, as if we've never negotiated with God or anything. As if we haven't said, maybe we haven't said it, but thought it. God, if I go to church, then surely you will. God, if I pray, I read my Bible, I'm nicer to my husband or my wife, I drink a little less, or I uh, take this fantasy life of mine and I put it on the shelf for a while. I give more money to the church in some way. Then, surely you will. And then when he does it, we get disappointed. We go, but God, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. And our disappointment reveals that somehow we were laying out bargaining little chips and we're trusting that they'll come back to us. This is devastating, but ours may be just as devastating. In the context of our own lives, this bargaining that, that takes place. Yeah, scripture is pretty straightforward about vows. Basically, the scripture says over and over that if you make a vow, you should keep it. If you make a vow to the Lord, you should keep it. In fact, the preacher, Ecclesiastes, says, therefore, be careful when you make vows. <laughs> because you're supposed to keep them. But, but, but yet, there's also provision in the law that says if you make a rash Vow, then God gives you a way to deal with such a, such a thing, these rash vows. For instance, in Leviticus in chapter 5, uh, we read, um, If anyone sins that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he's a witness, whether he has seen or, 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 or come to know the matter, it does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. And then later it says, Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath, to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear and it is hidden from him. When he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he's committed, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for his sin. In other words, the Lord is kind to us. He's gracious to us. He says, make a rash oath. You don't really know what you're saying at the moment. As Jephthah seemed to be surprised when his daughter came out. He says, listen, there's forgiveness. Just confess it. But you wonder, of course, why he kept it. Was it simply faithfulness to God? Could he not have known the scripture? Perhaps not. I mean, it was the days of darkness in Israel or perhaps didn't have a great sense of the grace of God. Um, one commentator, Tim Keller, on this passage puts it like this. Why did he keep his vow? He says, this is the hardest to answer. The best answer is an extension of the same reason that he made the vow. Jephthah seems to have no concept of a God of grace. He sees God as basically like the pagan gods, a being whose favor can be earned through flattery and lavish sacrifices. When he obviously realizes his rash vow has trapped him, why does he not simply confess its sinful foolishness and break it and save his daughter? The answer may be, he does not trust God. He's trapped by his mistrust of God. He seems to believe that God will strike him down if he doesn't keep it. This is the same pagan works righteousness view of God that led him 
to make that vow. We may be critical of, of Jephthah at this point too, but how many times do we think we're earning it? How many times do we think that we're putting it to God like that? Uh, and I must do this or God won't love me. Whereas God says, no, I love you. Now do this. You get those things a little bit, a little bit backwards. Like our first parents, we forget that God always has our best interest in mind. His law, his commandments are for our good to bless us and not to harm us. Uh, Thus we may be more like Jephthah than we would want to really admit. And then we wonder this too. Well, why didn't God stay his hand like he did Abraham? Remember Abraham took Isaac up in the mountain and was going to kill his son. And God said, no, I'll provide a substitute. Why didn't God do that here? And the answer, of course, is we don't know exactly because the passage doesn't tell us. Number two, however, we realize that with Abraham, it was God's initiation all the way through. With Jephthah, it's his plan. And so two very different Situations, two very different purposes. And then we have to still say, why didn't God protect this daughter? And we have to trust him. That he knows what he's doing. She seemed like a young woman of faith. We'll see. But there's something about this that is even more astounding. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is this great passage of people of faith. Uh, Begins in verse 1 by defining faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. And we read about Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Moses. No surprises there particularly. But then verse 32. And what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And we go, you know, I wouldn't have put him there. I mean, I, you know, I'd have left him out. Just at least not to give anybody the wrong idea, whether it was true of him or not. But that, that may say more about us than Jephthah. In our understanding of faith, you see, faith um, is, is, is that which looks away from itself, not back to itself. The little Greek word pistis is this word for faith or belief or trust or faithfulness. But you need none of those words in and of, it, in and of themselves is a complete idea. Each one of those words needs an object. Faith in, belief in, trust in, faithfulness to. 
by themselves, they, they don't mean much at all. Faith in faith, belief in belief, trust in trust, faithfulness in faithfulness. I mean, no, it doesn't make any sense at all. It's always an object necessary. And, and it's the object which is determinative here. It's the object which is important here. That's why I, I've never really been happy about the category people of faith. Because my question always is, faith in whom? <laughs> faith in what? And, and, and you see, that's the very, the very point here. We're to have faith in, in God, that He is the object. We have a tendency to think about the faith of the person or the amount of it or how strong it is. But yet, in this great uh, layout of people of faith, uh, Jephthah is in there. And even Gideon, he didn't do so well at the end. Even David. You know, Moses was no American Beauty Rose either. Abraham? See, who made it all happen? Not the individuals, not their faith, but the one in whom they had their faith. How did Jephthah conquer these enemies? Ah, God was at work. There's a sense in which, in ways that we can be highly critical of, that he seemed to have faith, but he did, according to the author of Hebrews. And please take his word over Jephthah's life and not, not mine. It's faith. Sometimes we think too highly of ourselves and too little of others. one more thing just very quickly at the, at the very end even after all these battles are won and even after this dreadful situation with, with his daughter uh, verse 12 says the men of Ephraim were called to arms and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and didn't call us to go with you we'll burn your house over you with fire <laughs> wow uh, now, we've had the Ephraimites before. It's about the last we'll hear of them, by the way. But uh, we've heard of them before. Remember with Gideon. They were all upset with Gideon because Gideon didn't uh, include them in the battle when he thought they ought to be included. And the Ephraimites are, are, are a mighty tribe, and, but they think pretty highly of themselves. So highly that if you don't include them, if you don't consult them, if you don't hear from them, then they get upset with you. So upset that they're going to burn your house down. And uh, that's a pretty forth- forceful word here to the guy who just lost his daughter. Now he's going to lose his house and everything around it. If, uh, but then Jephthah's really just uh, honest with him. And he says, uh, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you didn't save me from their land. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why have you come up to me this day to fight against me? He said, listen, I did consult you afterwards. You didn't come. You didn't help me. I had to do it myself. And so now you're coming up and your ego is such, your self-importance is such that uh, you can't even see that. And so then Jephthah, verse 4, gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, you're the fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the uh, Gileadites... uh, 
uh, Edites uh, captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when, the, when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And they said, no. And they said to him, say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And they seized him and slaughtered him in the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. And they were defeated because of a speech issue, an accent. That's how easily the Ephraimites were ultimately tricked. These mighty men of valor. You know, there's just something unsatisfying about all this. Beginning, we, we think, okay, Jephthah started out in a bad situation, but he's going to come and be this conqueror, and he does, and then his daughter, and now they're fighting against each other. You, you think, wait a minute, there was a great victory. Look, you should be happy. The enemy, the real enemy is defeated, and now you're fighting among yourselves. Why is that happening? Can't you see what the Lord has really done here? Again, if I can... Quote Tim Keller. He says, if we spend as much time pursuing unity and overlooking insults within our churches as we do seeking to remain on good terms with the world, our communities would be far less divided and far more loving. We need to ask, where am I too quick to judge my fellow Christians? What differences within Christianity do I use as opportunities to look down on others? Who am I refusing to forgive Relishing deep down the opportunity to shun them. These victories, as we read, are always tainted. Ah. But you know, there is one whose victory isn't tainted at all. And that's our Lord Jesus. See, there's no bargaining with God, no bargaining necessary. Why? Because Jesus already took our negotiation to the cross. He already took everything to the cross. He already did it. He already dealt with it. He already won it. And he says, now listen, here's grace to you. Here's the gift to you. Please receive it. Please take it. I'll even help you receive it and take it. I'll send my spirit to you to enable you to do all of that. Please receive this gift. Don't bargain. You don't have to say to God, if I do this, then won't you do that for me? Or if you do that for me, won't I do this for you? I've already done every single thing that needs to happen. Now receive it and live it. Know your forgiveness and grant forgiveness. Receive this grace and give grace. Receive this mercy and give mercy. Receive this love and be loving. He's the one that we trust. We read this morning Isaiah 53. He took our sins upon himself, our iniquity. He bore it so that we could be forgiven. When John writes that God really did so love the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's it, you see. It's really done. When the author of Hebrews tells us that all the other priests would die, but this priest would live forever. And since he lives, he constantly lives, continues to live to make intercession for us so that we will be saved. Uh, I love the King James here in that translation. Save us to the uttermost. 
Save us completely. Save us thoroughly. There's absolutely positively nothing left to be done by us. Just receive it. Just receive it. It's done. It's done. Oh, we flawed. Oh, my word. Actually, not my word. The Bible's word. (laughs) Yes, indeed, we are. Was Jephthah flawed? Oh my, we love to look at his flaws because it takes the attention away from our own. The Ephraimites, yeah. Jesus, no. Not one flaw. He was perfect and his perfection, his righteousness is imputed to us. That's the only way we can stand before the Lord. Uh, Forgiven. Declared righteous. Let's pray, Father. I pray for us all, for me, for us, that we would know this grace, that we wouldn't be confused by the culture in which we live, that we have to live as they live. We wouldn't be confused by our own sense of self-righteousness, that we would understand that there's only one righteous, our Lord Jesus. And we would then receive this grace and live in it. May we be honest about our own lives, to ourselves and to others, particularly God, to you. And may we receive from you, Father, grace and forgiveness and from others as well, even as we grant it. May we live together as one people, not divided by a bit of an accent or anything else, but united together in our Lord Jesus Christ. For he's the perfect deliverer. We receive that. We believe that. I do pray, God, for those among us on this day who struggle with a variety of things, who are tempted as I trust we all are, to trust in another other than you, to think, oh, I could be delivered from this if only. And God, that you would enable all of us to put our faith securely, tightly in you, to trust you, to walk with you, and to walk together with you. And this I pray in Jesus' name.